Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on The Detail, the Sex Offender Register. In 1989 in the States, there was a horrific sexual murder of a child, an 11-year-old boy called Jacob Wetterling. That terrible crime that has brought terror to the country's heartland. Jacob disappeared in a small Minnesota town in October 1989. He was riding his bike with his brother and a friend when a gunman grabbed him and told the other boys to run. National Guardsmen and police are chasing leads all over Minnesota, but they have found no trace of Jacob. His body actually wasn't found for decades after he was um, killed, so he just was missing for a long time. As Patty fought to find her child, she campaigned to protect everyone else's. His mother, Patty, went to the police chief in her area and said, is there anything that could have been done to make it easier to find Jacob? And that policeman said to her, well, it was really hard because they had to go around all these individual police departments looking for records of the names and addresses of people who had done this kind of offending against children in the past and then slowly make their way through it. And so he said, if there was some way that we could have centralised that information quickly, then it would have probably been faster to check these people. In 1994, thanks to her efforts, the Jacob Wedling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offender Registration Act was passed. That information eventually became accessible to the public and is now known as the National Sex Offender Registry. And that was the trigger for other countries to bring in sex offender registers. But it took New Zealand another 22 years to bring it in under the Child Protection Act. There's a twist to the Jacob Wetterling tragedy, I'll reveal that later. But the register here has been back in the news lately. In March, a retrospective urgent law change meant nearly 600 child sex offenders are being put back on the register. Also last month, Nationals Matt Ducey tried and failed to make notifications to schools mandatory. I accept that some sex offenders need to be managed in the community, but what this bill does is make sure the local school is informed so they can make informed decisions for managing that risk for their students, and I think parents expect that. So five years after it became law, the Sex Offender Register, which the public can't access, is still a tricky topic. Today I'm talking to Victoria University's Jordan Anderson. She's doing a PhD on it. She's also chair of Just Speak, a justice rights group. A register is essentially a depository of information, things like names, addresses, intentions to travel. Typically the way registration has worked across the societies we compare ourselves to, like Australia, the UK, the US, it is specifically focused on sex offenders or child sex offenders um, in attempt to contain the information and have up-to-date information about those people within the community. And what's the idea behind it? That is a very interesting question, and it has a very long and interesting history. Um, but essentially the idea behind it initially and through to today, is to have all of that information in one place so that these types of individuals can be continually monitored within the community. Who knows about them? So the register in New Zealand is held by the New Zealand Police and is confidential to the New Zealand Police. So we do not have public notification in this country. And how do they actually keep an eye on them or manage them? So they have a team of people who have been, since the passing of the legislation in 2016, they have a specialised team of people who are assigned 
the upkeep of those people in the community. Things like going and visiting them, checking that their addresses are what they say they are because these um, individuals are required to update the register at least annually but also with any changes. So, for example, if they purchase a new car and have a new car registration or if they change their name, they are expected to update their details with the New Zealand Police. And can the police um, share that information with anybody else? There is discretion around the identification of offenders in the community, particularly held by the Department of Corrections. The police have done that in the past, and the Department of Corrections also have discretion within the Corrections Act to notify what they define to be the interests of everybody involved in the community. So certainly that happens on a de facto basis. And how many are actually on the register at the moment? There's been a bit of a drop and a jump because of the events of the last month, but around 2,500. Are they all men? No. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Certainly dominant. If you look at prosecutions and you know incarceration rates for this kind of offending, it is massively dominated by men. But yet there are women, and there are women on the register. Can we go back to September 2016 when the Child Protection Bill became law? Parliament has just passed legislation setting up a register for child sex offenders. Convicted abusers will stand up for eight years to life, depending on the seriousness of their offence. The question around sex offender registry had kind of been in the minds of New Zealanders and the government for a couple of decades at that point because we had had um, Deborah Coddington publishing the book The Pedophile and Sex Offender Index of New Zealand in 1996 and then she became an MP and tried to get registration to happen in 2003 through a member's bill. My bill that I got through the first reading in Parliament was a complete register of all sex offenders, whether or not they'd had name suppression, which would not be available to the public but would be uh, accessible by anyone who would be authorised by the Minister of Police. That didn't go anywhere. And then throughout the 2000s, New Zealand was increasingly picking up policies from the United States. Um, and registration is absolutely an example of that, of that policy transfer throughout these countries like Australia, the UK, Canada and New Zealand. What was the thinking? I mean, was it because there was so much more awareness of sex offenders? Well, it's an interesting thing because the thinking behind this legislation in, that was brought forward in 2015, as well as the amendments and attempts that we've seen over the last month to adjust it, are essentially driven by the desire to keep kids safe. I believe, based on the evidence, that registration does not achieve that end. Essentially, Anne Tolley, in putting this legislation forward, was trying to address what she saw as an information gap around the movements and activities of child sex offenders in particular living in the community, um, particularly those that have been released from prison. So I absolutely commend the intention of it because clearly, based on the debates throughout the last few decades around this issue in Parliament, uh, there is cross-party consensus that there's a genuine need in our community to take greater action around particularly the sexual harm and abuse of children. But the problem is that there is absolutely no evidence that this policy produces that result. At the time, the register was criticised for being both too intrusive and then not going far enough. Mm. There will be those where there is a view that they can be reintegrated if they are monitored correctly and if they have access to programmes that are proven to work. 
A database on its own does not achieve. Even if they choose to spend a night or two away from home, they're obliged to give advance notice of that. Their digital footprint will be entirely available. So it's an incredibly intrusive means. This isn't about uh, rehabilitation or reintegration. It's not about punishment, sir. It's not about naming and shaming. It's about listening to the public. It's about listening to the victims. And it's about ensuring that we put the protection of our children first. And the only way that can happen is if this is a public register. If this register was to be made public, it would be a disincentive for people, for children, to report that someone in their family or some friend had offended against them. And therefore, it would in fact make children across New Zealand uh, even more unsafe. We've seen uh, some vigilante actions by communities. One poor chap had his house burnt down while he was out at work. Hadn't offended, hadn't caused any risk, but the community found out he was there and burnt his house down. So that's not going to help any of them. In fact, that's more likely to make them re-offend again. It's a real double-edged sword when you start to make policy based on feelings and particular cases and when you're talking about child safety in particular, no person wants to come forward as a parliamentarian, as a community member, and say, actually, no, I don't want to put the piece of legislation called the Child Protection Bill forward. You know, calling mm. it that makes it a very easy rallying cry for people. No one will say that they are against the protection of children. And you see that by the way pe- the parties have voted. For example, in 2016, only the Green Party voted against the legislation. And it was the same for the amendment last month. There was cross-party support for that amendment with the exception of the Green Party. This bill is in fact undermining New Zealand's own commitment to our fundamental domestic and international rights when it comes to the rule of law. Back in 2016, the police deputy commissioner Viv Rickard at the time said they have to live somewhere and we have to have some confidentiality for these people. And then the justice reform advocates said it was a red herring that created only an illusion Mm. of safety. You know, have those views changed since then? Based on the evidence that I have been analysing for the last few years, there is no evidence that registration is an effective means of providing that kind of support in the community. In fact, the evidence that I have examined would indicate that things like registration and notification are major stresses in the, in the lives of people that have offended and been released, and the number one trigger for reoffending is stress. Why does it create stress? You have to consider the nature of the New Zealand community. Essentially, my research examines what we call de facto community notification. So when I say that, what I mean is that built into actual laws, we have de jure registration. We do not have a law for notification, but it happens all the time. So corrections engage in it, the police have engaged in it, and by the nature of New Zealand society, of course, there are... um, leaks to the media, there are breaches of confidentiality where personal relationships are involved and information spreads extremely quickly. When corrections do take the measure of uh, notifying communities, school principals, as is their current discretion to do, 
that information spreads on social media, it spreads through school communities, and it creates essentially panics around this information. And so you can imagine for these types of individuals that are trying to set up their life, for that to be the way that they are met within the community with fear and hatred and sometimes in New Zealand vigilantism, Mm. that creates an enormous amount of stress for them. The better approach would be to provide wraparound support within the community rather than trying to make a list on a clipboard of every person and just having police check on them, you know, once a week. Have you spoken to anybody who's on this register? Yes. What do they tell you? They view the register as a punishment. The additional checking up through the New Zealand police, the reality of what it looks like when notification does occur, whether legal or not, um, is a punitive effect. And you see that because, you know, throughout the legislation of this, so in 2015 when the bill came before Parliament, the Attorney General determined that it was inconsistent with the Bill of Rights Act because it was, you know, um, excessive punishment. We said that again in the amendment that happened last month. Consistently, these kinds of pieces of legislation have been deemed to be inconsistent with the Bill of Rights Act because of how punitive they are. But the way they get around that, because you're not allowed to punish people after the end of their sentence. You can't continue to punish them in the community. So what this claims to be in legislation is a regulatory measure, but the effect is punitive. How did you actually get access to them? So within my research, I was interviewing community leaders in three communities that had experienced high-profile instances of community notification. So I did not interview for this research these people, but through my connections in those communities and through my work in the Wellington community, I get a lot of contact from people who have offended that are living in the community, people who have been victimised that are living in the community, as well as people who are in prison, Mm. who write me letters and things like that. Okay, let's look at these case studies. Mm -hmm. One, in 2018, 11 child sex offenders were put on the same street in Otahuhu in South Mm -hmm. Auckland, where eight schools and four childcare centres were nearby. After much public backlash, Corrections has removed 11 high-risk child sex offenders from one area of South Auckland. It was revealed that they were all living less than a kilometre away from a school in Otahuhu. Concerned residents gathered at a community meeting last night where it was announced the offenders would be placed elsewhere. This is probably the best example for discussion of this kind of stuff based on the case studies that I did. So the community there are absolutely insistent that it was 16 high-risk sex offenders that were discovered to have been placed in those boarding houses. I I acknowledge that the Department of Corrections has maintained that it was 11. Mm -hmm. But that was a whirlwind week of that being in the headlines of basically all news outlets in New Zealand. What I found when I went there three months after uh, was that the community were extremely frustrated with the Department of Corrections for a number of reasons. The way that the community responded, you know, with this, what you call a backlash, was partly in result of this perception of Otahu as well as places like Mangere and other areas of South Auckland as a quote-unquote dumping ground for people that other communities just won't tolerate having anymore. What I learned from my work with community leaders in this area was that this is a very um, accepting and generous community and they are absolutely willing and able to pull their weight in terms of helping people to reintegrate. And when these 11 to 16 offenders were put in 
substandard, non-consented boarding houses in a light industrial area in such close proximity to schools that they could, some of them could barely walk out the driveway without triggering their electronic monitoring. The community were deeply alarmed by that. The leaders of this community explained to me time and time again that they should definitely have a duty to support and reintegrate their own community members and the people from their own community who had offended and been released there, but there's no reason that they should have to do it en masse for individuals from outside of their community. And finally, I mean, the community here had been fighting the exploitative boarding house model for years. To put them in this unfit and inhumane accommodation was a real slap in the face, and people were absolutely furious about that. How does that relate to a register? These particular offenders may not have been registered at that time, but certainly the policy options of registration and notification of sex offenders are twin policies. So typically societies that put in place registration very quickly then put in place notification. It's important to be clear that there is no evidence, as far as I'm aware, that either policy reduce reoffending or harm. So even though this register isn't public, mm-hmm. if there are particular sex offenders who are being housed somewhere, and it doesn't happen with every person no. on this register, but some particular ones, I mean the Beast of Blenheim was so... Um, infamous. Yeah. Infamous, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so in those cases there is community notification. Yeah, when, when the Department of Corrections deem it to be in the best interests of every person involved, including the individual who has offended, um, there are panels in each district of the Department of Corrections that consider where the notification of schools in particular will be undertaken and that panel is then responsible for making the decision about notification. Say if schools are notified, mm-hmm. is this any kind of obligation on them to keep it confidential? What do they tend to do? Yeah, that is a great, great question, and particularly in the context of what happened last month with National MP Matt Ducey's Members' Bill to make notification of schools compulsory. Informing schools when a sex offender is being placed in the community is not a new practice for corrections. They already do it, so there is no argument why they can't do it mandatorily. This is what my bill does. It makes it mandatory. I spoke to primary school and high school principals throughout these communities about this exact issue. Um, Some of them had experienced notification, others had never heard of that being a thing, and all of whom were concerned with the idea that that risk would then be delegated to them. Um, They were concerned with the idea that they would be given yet another crisis or risk to manage within the community when school principals are already a catch-all for other issues. Okay, so in your ideal world, how would it all work? There would be no register. That's right. These policies are barely sticking plasters over the issue. This register in New Zealand is solely a register for child sex offences. So we have not registered all sex offenders. We have deemed that sex offenders who have committed offences against children are the ones that need to be registered. What we know about child sex offending is that the vast majority of it goes undetected, 
unreported, unprosecuted in the community. And so if your intention is to reduce harm to children in the community and to remove the risk of sexual harm to children in particular, you would need to take a much more broad-based approach to that reduction of harm by engaging with communities directly because we know that these particular people who are on this register who are usually already on um, strict parole conditions, sometimes extended supervision orders, and there are a vast majority of people who have offended against children and caused sexual harm to children who exist in the community without detection for their entire lives. So you're saying that they should be released into the community without a register and what, and get a lot more support? Absolutely. Should there be any kind of notification to schools? If the Department of Corrections are taking responsibility and an evidence-based approach to the kinds of risk they are managing, there would be no need for that because we could just trust that the government are doing what they have promised us to do. And corrections are often between a rock and a hard place with issues like this because it's easy to say that and then one freak horrific incident happens and they get all the blowback. But we've learned in New Zealand and throughout the societies we compare ourselves with, the creation of policy driven by a single event rather than evidence always leads to poor policy creation. I think it's difficult for parents to... Absolutely. <laughs> and I guess that's what the politicians are... Yeah, responding to responding big to, time. Yeah. As I say, you know, the rallying cry that it creates when you call a piece of legislation, something like the Child Protection Bill, no one wants to fight against that. And, I mean, it was pretty hard position even for the Green Party to be in, to be talking about human rights of these individuals who have offended and how important it is to consider what the Attorney General said about the Bill of Rights Act being violated again and again in this area. But people... I mean, there's... Hang on, I've got a really interesting quote here. In the debate last month, uh, there was a statement by a parliamentarian which was... There is sometimes a trade-off between the Bill of Rights Act and safety. And that's a really scary statement to hear from a parliamentarian in New Zealand, that human rights and the Bill of Rights of New Zealand are dispensable for people who Parliament deems it to be. And that was Police Minister Portal Williams who made those comments. Now, back to that tragic case of Jacob Wetterling. His killer was found and confessed 27 years later. But here's the twist. The very person who campaigned for this in the first place, Paddy Wetterling, now works with offenders in prison and is deeply filled with regret about what she did because of the impact on millions of people. There are now over a million people on the sex offender register in the United States, and that's created um, essentially sex offender enclaves where you have entire communities like Miracle Village in Florida, where it's almost entirely sex offenders because that's the only place they can live. And so Patty Wedling, who was the, the very origin of this idea, she now is filled with um, regret and resentment of this policy and works to rectify the harm that she ha believes that she has caused. We need to um, do a way more broader education about sex offences and how they happen and, and how kids are mostly not taken at gunpoint. They're tricked or lured. So I think that we really need to take a look at what was passed and how are we using that and is it effective. I think in many cases the answer is going to be no.
That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. Alexia Russell and Jesse Chang produced this episode and Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to Jordan Anderson. Kakite.